Hey, I want to wish a super happy Father's Day to all the dads watching uh, and a very special Father's Day to James Massey. <laughs> Thanks for uh, taking one for the team there. But really for you dads, the most important work you have in your life is to raise disciples, to make disciples as a follower of Jesus. And when God entrusts you with kids, that becomes the primary place that you can give yourselves to disciple making. And so I just thank you for doing that with your children. Uh, you, a lot of you really inspire me. I like to learn from you and how you're discipling your kids well. So dads, spiritual dads, I just thank you so much for investing in those around you. We're starting a brand new series uh, called Resilient Disciples that I think are cer is certainly going to help dads in these next number of weeks really zero in on primary ways to disciple your kids, disciple those in your life. But really, I, I know that this is going to help all of us in our own growth as followers of Jesus and in our disciple making. We're going to be in 1 Peter over the next six weeks, and we're going to be studying five practices of resilient disciples together. You can turn to 1 Peter now. It's, it's really close to the end of your Bible. I'm turned there. We're going to be in chapter 2. 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter, is a call to trust and obey God in hard circumstances. Peter accomplishes that exact purpose by pointing to what Jesus has done for us and applying that to our lives. And so my goal with this introductory sermon in the series is to uh, look at the disciple-making context that we're living in right now and then setting the table for the five practices we're going to look at one at a time in the coming weeks. So let me read to you First uh, Peter 2. We'll look at verse 11 first, and then we'll look at verse 12 in a little bit. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, this word exiles, it always refers to a temporary residence in a foreign place. So, so since our true homeland is in heaven, we understand that we're living in exile as temporary residents in a world that is not our true home. Peter was writing this letter to Christians in four Roman provinces in Asia Minor, south of the Black Sea. And even if that's where a number of the people who received this letter had grown up, had been born and lived, he nonetheless calls them exiles. And, and that's us too. We're temporary residents in a place that's not our true home. And when we live as exiles, what's happening is we're living in a place that runs contrary to the will and the ways of God. To live in exile is to live in a place where the cultural movements around us are actually going downstream away from God rather than towards God. And so that's part of what it looks like to live in exile. This happened a number of times in the scripture. A whole generation of young people from Israel were taken into exile in Babylonian culture. And one of the scenarios where that happened was with Daniel and a number of others from his generation. So since Daniel originally addressed his message in the Old Testament to Israelites suffering exile in Babylon, his chief goal was to comfort and encourage God's people with the news that, despite appearances to the contrary, God was still in control. 
It's probably why Daniel has been an encouragement to believers ever since. Daniel was called to follow God in the midst of Babylonian exile. He had to learn to be faithful in a foreign land where everything was undermining of his faith and the entire cultural pressure was against him. We find ourselves not only in exile, but Babylonian exile as well. Let me, let me explain that to you. Um, we live in a compl- complicated, accelerated culture. I want to give you some dynamics of living in Jerusalem, and I also want to share some dynamics of living in Babylon and see which one resonates more with our moment, our time and place. In Jerusalem, faith is at the center. Faith is at the center of life in Jerusalem, whereas in Babylon, faith is pushed to the margins. In Jerusalem, uh, faith is monotheistic. There's There's a general belief in one God and the same God. Um, It's interesting, um, actually, the Lord's Prayer was recited in public schools in Canada until 1988 very much kind of a monotheistic um, mindset there in the nation. Babylon, on the other hand, it was very pluralistic, very pluralistic, many gods, many ways, many paths. Jerusalem had a slower pace of life to it. Everyone would practice the Sabbath. Wasn't that, that long ago when I was a kid that like no stores were open on Sundays. They were all closed. And so you just, you had to like hang out and uh, just be with your family on Sundays. And that was a, a pattern of the culture because the cultural norm was that actually we will all have this rhythm together. Stores weren't open on Sundays. There was a common rhythm to life then. But in Babylon, there's this accelerated, frenetic pace of life. And really in modern Babylon, life goes at the speed of fiber optics. In Jerusalem, the idol, the temptation was false piety. The temptation to just do the right stuff. In Babylon, the idol is fitting in and being up to speed. Like You haven't watched that new miniseries? It's been out for 48 hours. You're so behind. We can't even talk about this at work now. You haven't watched it yet? What? Crazy. So frenetic, so fast-paced. And the desire then is to stay up to date. That pushes against the simple life of Jerusalem, essentially a pre-internet kind of era where there was a simplicity to life. Whereas in Babylon, there is this bitter and sweet tension, this bitter, sweet tension. It's, It's sweet because there's a connectivity and there's an easy access to everything. And yet there's this tension and bitterness to it um, that really is, has at the same time led to increased loneliness and anxiety. So part of the crisis of discipleship right now is that, that many parents and educators and pastors and churches were trying to make disciples for Jerusalem. But the problem is that we are actually residents of Babylon. I helped coach my, my son's hockey team this year. And the thing about hockey is between every period, the, goal, the goalies change ends. They switch sides. And so in one particular game that we were actually close in, 
early in the third period. There was a battle for the puck and our player got the puck and he turned and he just fired that thing at the net. The problem was is our goalie had switch ends and he just shot it at his own goalie. It hit him in the pad and it trickled in. See, the challenge is that when the goalposts change, when, when things actually shift and we don't shift the, 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 the context in which we are living, we're trying to raise disciples for an environment that we're not actually living in and we shouldn't find ourselves surprised when we don't have the kinds of results that we would expect. It only makes sense that methodology and points of emphasis would need to adapt as well. The goal is still to make disciples of Jesus. It's just that the environment has changed so rapidly and we need to ask ourselves, yeah, but how best do we do that? So let's go back to the text. Peter goes on after saying, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he goes on to say, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Now, Peter goes on to instruct disciples of Jesus to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they run contrary to the characteristics of our heavenly home. We're exiles in this place. So we are not to uh, pursue the passions of the flesh. So Peter tells us to abstain, literally to avoid, to keep away from. It's anything that runs contrary to the will and ways of Jesus that we are to push against. Now, to abstain from the passions of the flesh doesn't mean we will never fail. What Peter is saying here is not an expectation of perfection. What he's saying that is that our faculties, our, our hearts, and our posture will be one that we don't accept the passions of the flesh. We don't give over to them. We don't begin to identify ourselves by them. And we don't give up and give ourselves in and say, ah, whatever, it's hopeless. I'm just all about this. We don't give ourselves to that. What happens is, yes, we fail, but then we, we look to Jesus again and we repent of that failing and then we fix our eyes afresh on Jesus and keep pursuing his righteousness. He goes on to say to abstain from the passions of the flesh that are actually doing something very intense, that are actually waging war against your soul. They wage war against your soul, inflicting harm on the Christian's soul and rendering our souls spiritually weak and ineffective. There is a war over your soul and the devil loves for you to have a weakened soul, a distracted soul, and an ineffective heart for the Lord. And I think this is the case with so many who identify as Christians today. We're, we're using some, some data, some, some really thorough research that was compiled and then put in a book called Faith for Exiles. It's recent data. It includes data uh, in the nation of Canada, which is helpful. Usually we're left out. And so it's really, really helpful stuff. And we recognize that there's a war being waged against our souls that wants to steal our time and our attention and our passions and either make us a spokesperson for something other than Jesus. We're spending all of our efforts, all of our energies on things that have nothing to do with honoring Christ and living for him. Or we are merely lulled into entertained complacency. These are challenges that press us in Babylon as exiles. Let me show you what I mean. 
Uh, this it, uh, shows the weight of digital Babylon versus spiritual input. It's a study done, part of a study done two years ago, um, looking at the typical 15 to 23 year old. It's estimated that they will use screen media for 2,767 hours in a year. Now, those same 15 to 23 year olds will typically take in 153 hours of spiritual content. That may be online or that may be in settings where they hear talk about faith. Now, there's a, there's a subtle nudge, it's actually nearly double, of church-going 15 to 23-year-olds, it climbs all the way to 291 hours in a year, meaning that the typical uh, church-going kid, 15 to 23-year-old, uh, has the blue box filled with life group, youth group, uh, church on Sunday, some sort of media that's about their faith, and yet it simply pales in comparison to the discipling that's going on through their screens. Now, I'm not anti-screens. We're thankful for screens. We're using one right now so that we can share the gospel with you and gather our church around common teaching and be together that way. Like, so this isn't an anti-screens series or scenario, but what I am saying is we run a challenge here where we're trying to raise disciples of Jesus in Babylon, and I'd actually like to use the phrase digital Babylon because screens disciple. Screens disciple. Everything has a narrative. Everything's driving you towards a worldview, a way of seeing the world. And so when the intake is so minuscule compared to all the other themes that you are getting in your life, we run into a modern challenge for raising disciples in this moment. It's such a unique time. 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. I'll give you an example. 400 hours of YouTube videos are posted every minute. Now, about 200 of those are cat videos, yes. Yet, it just shows you how much content is going into the world. Many of the messages trying to influence you in some way. So this is why we not only live in Babylon, which is frenetic and pluralistic, we live in digital Babylon. And this has a massive effect on those who have been raised in the church. Let me show you. So there are four kinds of exiles. Look, when the Israelites would be grabbed and moved into exile, usually because of their disobedience, and God was using that actually to refine them, yet they would pull all these Israelites into, into exile, into Babylon. That doesn't mean that all of them are going to live faithfully for God there. Doesn't mean that at all. So, well, well, uh, churchgoers live in exile. We need to see what kinds of ex. Uh, there's four kinds of exile, really, and this is a study of 18 to 29 year olds who grew up as Christians, grew up going to church, identifying themselves as Christians as they did. Now, today, 22 percent of them are prodigals. In other words, they're ex-Christians. They themselves do not identify as Christians, despite having considered themselves one as a child or a teen. And then we have the nomads. And this is from the entire study of many nations. This, these are the averages. We see 30% are nomads or could be referred to as lapsed Christians. 
It's those who identify as Christians themselves, but haven't been involved with a church in the last month, where actually the vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with a church for over six months. That would be the nomads. And then we have 38% habitual churchgoers. They describe themselves as Christians and attend church at least once per month. But when the studies begin to dig a little deeper at the Christian life and values and living as a disciple of Jesus, what they discover is that that, that these habitual churchgoers don't meet the foundational core beliefs and behaviors associated with intentional, engaged disciples. That leaves one category of exiles, and they are referred to as resilient disciples, and there's 10% of them. And I'm going to describe what they are in just a little bit. But now let's move on to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter goes on to say this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, verse 12 is really the positive counterpart to verse 11. Verse 11 said, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul." Verse 12 says, keep your conduct honorable. Now this word conduct is really referring to a day-to-day pattern of life. It's your character. It's the way that you can be described, generally speaking, your day-to-day conduct. And Peter is referring to all unbelievers here as Gentiles. The reason for that is just a couple of verses ago, he said, you are a chosen race to the Christians in Asia Minor. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so he's describing all, he's not talking about Jewish Christians expecting that they're the people in those locations and Gentiles are the others. No, he's actually referring to Christians as the new Israel and therefore everyone else who is an unbeliever as a Gentile. So that's Peter's reference of Gentile. And so he's saying that there and ultimately what this verse is telling us is that Christians are to have good conduct around unbelievers. I like to use the phrase a compelling Christian witness. What Peter is calling for here is a compelling Christian witness among unbelievers by the way that we conduct ourselves. Why? Well, he tells us because it could result in their salvation and it will result in God being glorified. So we move on. We're going to define what resilient disciples are and then we're going to look at what resilient disciples do. So how do we define uh, resilient disciples? The study that was done that found that 10% of those who grew up in the church can be deemed as resilient disciples. Here's what they mean by that. Four particular traits. First, they attend church at least monthly, but more than that, they engage with their church more than just attending worship services, meaning they're They're in a life group or they go to youth group or um, they serve in some capacity in the church or they're a part of the mercy ministry of the church in the community. They don't just attend, they, they serve, they participate. Second, they trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They believe that the Bible is authoritative in their lives, that it is God's word and it's God's word to them that they are to submit their lives under. Third, 
resilient disciples are followers of Jesus who are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. This is actually, if you ever wonder what we're whispering to people who are getting baptized, we're essentially like, do you believe Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins? And do you believe that he rose again to raise you to new life? And they're like, yeah, right? There we go. That's what happens. That's what's going on there. And so that's really a baptism confession. Yes, I believe in Jesus and I believe these important things about Jesus. And then fourth, express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith, right? Think back to Daniel in exile in Babylon was given to following God in a difficult place that he might shine for him. That's what resilient disciples do, no matter the context. I want us to to fan out a little bit and globetrot here. Let's take a global look at this study. Um, We see Canada right at the very, very far left here is the average of the entire study. And then just inside from that is the United States. And then right over beside that is Canada. Interestingly, I was a little bit surprised by this, Canada has just 1% less resilient disciples than in the US. In Canadian landscape, 9% of those who grew up going to the church and identifying as Christians, he, they, they view as resilient disciples. The key difference between the two nations is in the middle there, is that Canada has way less habitual churchgoers and way more nomads. The nomads identify, they say I'm Christian, but I, I, I've, I've removed myself from the context of the church. My faith is my own. That's, that's much more a Canada thing. Um, right about in the, well, little to the left of the middle here, we have Kenya. Kenya won, if this was a competition. Kenya won. 41% of those raised in the church who identified as Christians, 41% are seen as resilient disciples. So if you're considering, hey, maybe I should go do missions in Kenya, I would actually encourage you, give a bunch of money to some Kenyan resilient disciples and send them here to be missionaries because that's the greater need. Actually, what I would do is I would invite you to go be a missionary in Austria. Look at Europe. Look at Austria. The percentage of resilient disciples in Austria, 1%. Canada has been rapidly becoming post-Christian, much more like Europe. We've been racing towards these numbers in the last couple of decades, but there's reason to hope. There's reason to hope. The point of this whole study was not to say, there's so many people leaving the church, why? The point of the study is, there are a number of people who are staying, who look like the kind of disciples the Bible talks about, and so they lean into that and say, what is it about them? What is it about them in a hard, difficult context like this? The study also discovered that there's no more difficult place to be a follower of Jesus, to be a resilient disciple, than in digital Babylon. Whatever the reasons, there's a number of dynamics going on, but in a very difficult, hard place to be a Christian in the world, the percentages of resilient disciples is much greater. It's hard to have resiliency as a follower of Jesus in digital Babylon. And that's the stream we're up against, we're swimming against. But there's reason for hope and optimism. You know why? Because of the 9% resilient disciples. That remnant could be used by God to bring an awakening to the church here and across our nation. So 
I told you we'd get to this. What are the practices? What practices distinguish resilient disciples? Well, there are five. They were common in all of the resilient disciples. Those who had those four traits, those four core beliefs and participations, right, in the church and believing the Bible, believing about Jesus and having a desire to live out their faith in the world, these practices were evident in all of them. Firstly, their desire to form a resilient identity and experience intimacy with Jesus. Yes, they would read their Bible. Yes, they would pray. Yes, they would go to church. Yes, they serve. Yes, they bless. But they have intimacy with Jesus. They see him working. They sense his presence, him moving among them in their lives. And there's this intimacy with Jesus that they possess. That's crucial. We'll look at that next week. Second, in a complex and ancient age, they develop the muscle of cultural discernment. Like I said, right, that, that, that box of the screen time <laughs> that we're getting and then this, this very small box of kind of spiritual input, how do we discern? When so little time comparatively is given to narratives, how do we know how to follow Jesus faithfully? Well, resilient disciples develop the muscles of cultural discernment. Third, when isolation and mistrust are the norms, they forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. They forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Fourth, to ground and motivate an ambitious generation, they train for vocational discipleship. That doesn't mean they're all going to do overseas missions or become a pastor. What it means is whatever job they get, they recognize, I'm bringing my discipleship into this to make much of Jesus. And fifth, they curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in counter-cultural mission. So how do we build resilient disciples at this time? How do we do it? Two key words rise to the top. Realism and hope. Realism plus hope, I think, equals resilience. You need to know exactly where you are, that we are in digital Babylon and what you're facing. We need to have an accurate comprehension of our context. That's realism. But then you also need hope. Realism without hope leads to pessimism. But hope without realism, well, it's just a fantasy. It's just head in the clouds. But realism, recognizing our digital Babylon reality, while also embracing hope, the resilience that we're seeing, and the opportunity for renewal through this remnant is absolutely exciting. Let me just close with a few final thoughts. First, a question for you. Are you a resilient disciple? Are you a resilient disciple? Listen, if you're a prodigal who has found your way to this service today, like I, I'm, I'm just so glad you're watching. I'm really glad you're here. If you're a nomad who has kept your distance from the church these past few months, and let, yet here you are watching, I'm glad. I'm glad you're watching. And if you're a habitual churchgoer, smarten up. <laughs> just kidding. If you're a habitual churchgoer, I'm glad, I'm glad you're a part of Central. But I, I'm going to show my cards I would say to all of you, my desire is that you would become a resilient disciple. 
My desire is that you would become absolutely resilient in your discipleship. That's our mandate as a church. That's our mission. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus who lead others to follow him. So as we embark on this series, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to evaluate your walk with Jesus and to learn and apply the practices of resilient faith over the next five weeks. I've been talking about this with the staff and we are committed to evaluating the quality and effectiveness of our ministries. Our goal isn't just to do the same old programs, the same old ways, hoping for the same results. No, we will continue to put our investments into what builds resilient discipleships. And if we need to adjust here and adjust there, we're committed to doing so. You know, this moment calls for learning like this from us. You know why? We can't meet together in large groups. And so resilient discipleship matters now as much as it ever has. So my invitation is that we would leverage it. We would leverage our faith in Jesus for the cause of the gospel now, today, right? That we would lean into this. That's my hope for us through this series, that we might all become resilient disciples. Now, before I pray and share a benediction, just want to let you know over the course of this series, we're going to conclude our online service the same way. We'll, we'll show a couple questions at the very end on the screen for a little bit. And what we'd like you, for you to do is, is right after the service and as the screen comes up, the questions come up on the screen, I just invite you to reflect on them right in that moment for a little bit, right? We believe that the Spirit of God wants to say some things to our hearts and impress some things on us and to, to shake some things down for us. We live in a frenetic culture and the service can end and you can think, well, that was important. And then you go on to the next thing, never to think about it again. We just want to take a moment. We want to take a moment just to reflect, to pray, ask ourselves some questions. A couple of these questions, there'll be, there'll be a life group later in the week, but that you will have thought through them a little bit more. And hopefully life group conversations can be even more engaging. If you're watching it alone, if you're watching it with others, just invite you to, to reflect on it yourself. And if you're around others, gathering with a few others for the service, just invite you to discuss a little bit after. Think that God really might want to use that for us. So let me pray, and then I'll send you with a benediction. Jesus, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you that even in exile, even in digital Babylonian exile, you go with us. You make a way for us to live for you. God, I pray that you would teach us. We have so much to learn. I pray that, Lord, that you would teach us how to live resiliently for you in this moment. And God, I pray that you would use the remnant of resilient disciples for awakening in our church, in the church, in our nation, and beyond. So Jesus, I pray that you'd go before us. You continue to mold and shape our hearts more and more into your image, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.